I want to say once again what a privilege it is to be with you this weekend here at Bethlehem. I don't know if you know it, but there's life here. There's life here. And I'm encouraged to see your zeal, your commitment to Christ, your uh, love for one another. Your pastor, I've admired him for years. His soundness in the faith and his enthusiasm for the cause of Christ and uh, certainly enjoyed and appreciate the Duns for keeping us, Brother Marlon and Sister Rhonda, and each one of you who have contributed to this meeting by your words of encouragement, your fellowship. It's been a joy for us, for Lori and I and Evie and Olivia to be with you this weekend. Thank you very much for your Christian hospitality. It's our happy privilege now to open the Holy Scriptures together, and I invite you to join me, if you will, in the second chapter of Genesis. I want to read a passage from Genesis 2, and then read a brief passage from Genesis 3, as we speak on the theme, Returning to the Garden. Genesis chapter 2, reading verses 8 through 15. And the Lord God formed, well, starting in verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison. That is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Delium and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. The same is it that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hittical. That is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Now if you would turn one page forward to Genesis chapter 3, reading verses 22 to 24. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. I am intrigued by the garden motif or theme of Holy Scripture. Gardens are something with which no doubt each of us is familiar. Probably many of you 
have raised or are raising a vegetable garden. And I tried my hand at that once or twice and decided to just receive from the bounties that others had produced. I've always enjoyed arboretums or flower gardens, places that were formed for peaceful reflection, serenity, quietness, calmness. Here you have a particular tree and here you have a particular flowering plant. There are manicured pathways and little benches to sit and enjoy. Gardens are a wonderful idea. In fact, gardens were God's idea. God planted a garden in the eastward part of Eden. Now, Eden's a province or a territory, and God cultivated a particular garden in the vicinity of Eden, it is called the Garden of Eden, and there he put the man that he had created. When I think of gardens, I think of something fragrant, something peaceful, calm, beautiful. I think of a place of order, a place that is delightful, where there is harmony. In other words, I think of paradise when I think of a garden. The passage in Genesis 3 that I read, however, says that man has been expelled from the garden. Man has been cast out of paradise. Paradise has been lost, in the words of John Milton. The garden now is inaccessible to man. God put cherubims, these militant angels, at the east entrance to the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword, I think of Indiana Jones, with the knives flaming the fire, or I think of the rock, in which Sean Connery seeks entrance into that place by dodging the flaming sharp knives and the, uh, the fires as he gains entrance to that place. In, in other words, normal people can't go in there. It is inaccessible. The garden is not open. No access. The garden has been closed. No admittance. Paradise has been lost. And my beloved, may I say, our world is not the Garden of Eden anymore. Amen. We're not in Kansas anymore. Our world has lost its way. Would you agree? Amen. And that is the theme of Genesis 3 through 11. I preached a series of messages some years back, borrowing from the uh, popular title by Robert Fulgham, all I really need to know I learned in kindergarten. And the title was, and by the way, when you lack substantive content in your sermons, you have to come up with flashy titles. 
Right, Brother Tim? <laughs> no, no, Brother Tim's as substantive as any preacher I know. But um, it's like a book cover, you know? You think, oh, that's an interesting book, and then you open it, and it's anticlimactic. You know, the cover's the best part of the book. Well, the title of the message is sometimes the best part of the message. But I preached a series of messages called All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Genesis 1 through 11. And this, this passage in your Bible, the first 11 chapters of the Bible, is vitally important. And by the way, that may be one reason that it is under such great attack in popular culture today. Creation. Of course, the Darwinists have attacked and assaulted the foundation of God as creator for many years. Ever since Darwin's publication of The Origin of the Species, Creation, has been under assault. And in every institution of higher learning and even at the lower levels now, creation is dismissed as something that only the ignorant and uninitiated believe. What about the genders? God made them male and female. Is that under assault today? That's in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. God made the universe and he made man as male and female. There's a masculine and a feminine quality to humanity. And they are bone, she is bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, and God gave Adam a compliment. I'm a complementarian. I believe that he gave him someone to complete him, to fill him out, to be what he lacked, in other words, men folk, we just don't have everything we need in and of ourselves. As a rule, it is not good for the man to be alone. What about the story of the age of the earth? What about history? There's so many people today who fail to understand that the world has been dramatically altered by a global flood. That's in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. Peter tells us that they are willingly ignorant, that the earth standing out of the water and in the water, the world that then was perished. And what he's telling us is that they deliberately turn a blind eye to the evidence because of a moral predisposition which is contrary to God. And that, my friends, is the situation that we're in today. What about the depravity of man, that man is not basically good? He does not have a spark of divinity, but he's fallen in sin. He's lost the divine image in which he was created, in a sense. In other words, what I mean is that man is still a rational being. He's in the image of God, and he can still think from cause to effect, but even his mind and his conscience is defiled. He doesn't like to retain God in his knowledge, according to Romans 1. He's still a moral being. He has a conscience. But his conscience, again, has been marred by sin. He still is a communicative or a social being. He still needs relationship. No man is an island to himself. In other words, we need other people. God, who is Trinitarian, is himself a relational being, and he made man in his image. But you see, man has lost the divine image in the sense, as John Calvin said, looking at man today is like looking at the ruins of a great castle. There's a hint of its former grandeur, but everywhere it's in ruins. There's a hint. 
that, it is, that he is made in God's image. So man is a relational being. He's a, he's a moral being. He has a conscience. He's a rational being. He can think from cause to effect. He, he's not ruled merely by instinct. But you see, all of that is under assault in popular education and in pop culture today. It's all under attack. What about this idea that we want an international community? We want to all speak the same language, and that is more of a prospect today. The internet, the World Wide Web, has shrunk our world to where we, my friends, can have conversations with people on the other side of the planet. We can travel. You know, knowledge has been increased, and and, um, and, and transportation is readily accessible. Our world is smaller today. It's a global community, we're told. That's Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, in which man is uniting together to try to build his tower to the heavens in opposition to the creator God, saying we don't need God. We can save the day. Man is all that we need. That, my friends, is Genesis 1 through 11. Would you agree our world has lost its way? The post-Edenic world is more akin to a battlefield or a barren wasteland than it is a garden today. Think about your daily headlines, human exploitation, class warfare, genocide, rioting mobs, disease, rape, Poverty, euthanasia, abortion, ethnic tension, social indoctrination, oppression and persecution of those who claim a certain religion. And we could go on and on and on. Our world is not a garden anymore. But I want you to turn, if you would, to John chapter 19, verse 41, and listen to this interesting little tidbit of information. Now in the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher wherein was never man yet laid. There they laid Jesus. Therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. Now Golgotha, the place of the crucifixion, is called the place of a skull. That's not real attractive, is it? A skull. It was the town garbage heap. They dumped their refuse. There was a landfill. Golgotha, outside the incorporated city limits of Jerusalem, here is Golgotha, or in the Mount Calvary region, it is, my beloved, a place of, of human refuse, and it's repulsive and it's repugnant, but in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. How do you think that garden got there? Somebody decided to try to beautify the ugliness of a fallen world by planting a little garden, and it says there was a garden tomb there, and if you look into the next chapter, John chapter 20, we read verse 15, that the risen Christ said unto Mary Magdalene, Woman, why weepest thou? 
Whom seekest thou? And it says, she supposing him to be the gardener. Said unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Mary thought that at that hour of the day, of course, she'd arrived before dawn, you know, and when she gets there, this person, she finds the tomb empty, and the angels tell her that he is not here, he's risen, and it's interesting to me that she's not even intrigued by the angels. She's just saying, if you've, tur- if you've borne him hence, tell me. And then she turns away, and suddenly someone asks her, why are you weeping? And she supposed this person to be the gardener. I suggest for consideration that there is a double entendre meaning, as is typical in John's gospel in that passage, that John, by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, is saying to us that what Mary supposed was actually true in this case, for Jesus is the great gardener. Just as we lost our freedom in, the, in a garden, Adam fell in the garden, so my friends, the empty tomb is in a garden. And so we're given life in a garden. Now I wonder if you've ever sat around and engaged in some philosophy about gardens. Have you ever really thought about them? A garden j- doesn't just magically appear. Gardens are not natural phenomena. If you find a garden, you can rest assured that there has been a gardener somewhere. Someone made that garden. What do you call a place where that man hasn't touched? You call it a wilderness. <laughs> you call it uh, nature, don't you? I mean, it's, it's rough. It's, it's uh, difficult traveling. There are thorns and briars, and there are, there's underbrush, and it's... You know, it's not tame. A garden is a small, let's think philosophically for just a moment. A garden is a small section that someone has deliberately tamed for the sake of bringing a bit of beauty and a bit of peace in a world of strife and conflict and tension. In fact, if I were to give a definition of a garden, it's a small plot of land marked out for the purpose of cultivating a little slice of paradise in a controlled environment. Now, what do you usually put around a garden? You usually put a fence, right? Maybe some rocks, some markers, because if you're going to distinguish it from the wild, wild wilderness, then you certainly want to mark it out, and then you, you invest your labor in that little small plot of ground. You say, well, I just want to make the whole world a garden. Good luck. <laughs> That's not going to be very easy, is it? In fact, it's hard enough to keep a small half-acre quarter acre, 100 by 200 foot garden spot clear of weeds, what happens when you neglect a garden for just a few moments? Maybe a few days or weeks, what happens? Well, before you know it, it's turned back into the wilderness. Because a garden takes meticulous and deliberate attention and effort, and it takes ongoing care 
God planted a garden and he put Adam and Eve in it to dress and to keep that garden. They fell, they brought sin into the world, and since that time, man has been expelled from the garden and the world itself, my friends, is a ravaging wasteland of danger and peril and thorns and briars. This world is not paradise. I don't have to belabor that point any longer, I don't think. But you know, kings in ancient times planted gardens. I love the words in Ecclesiastes 2.5 concerning Solomon when he says, I made great works, I built me houses, I planted me vineyards. What's a vineyard? It's a place where you plant vines for grapes. I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruit. I made pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. Do you like gardens? I do. I look out here in the center between the older sanctuary and the new sanctuary, and I see a garden spot. I see some lovely plants. I see it's well manicured. I see it's well kept. And it's lovely to me. It's more lovely than downtown New York City. The concrete jungle of Minneapolis or Chicago or Detroit with its housing and its freeways and its jackhammers and its tractor trailers and its honking horns and its smoke and pollution. Don't you like a garden better than the city? Now, maybe you say, well, Brother Mike, I like the excitement of the city. I like the peace, the quietness of a garden. Gardens were God's idea. He's the first gardener. And Jesus Christ is the great gardener who recreates the paradise lost in Adam. The second Adam, through his marvelous grace, can restore garden paradise in our lives. You say, well, where is it? Why isn't the world a paradise? I'm saying, my friends, it's a small plot of land. The gardens are here and there. The gardens are not prevalent. But I believe there are three areas in our lives in which we can find a garden paradise. Through Christ and his gracious work of recreation, Our lives, as his people, may indeed be a garden paradise. They may be echoes of the original garden paradise that was lost through sin because of grace and its superabounding power in our lives. What Adam lost for us, Christ can bring to us. And the first area that you and I can find the reality of a recreated garden is in our homes. Now, I can't, I I want to influence my community. And you say, I want world peace. Well, you can keep dreaming. That's not going to happen until the Prince of Peace comes back. You say, well, then we need to make our state righteous and godly. Well, certainly there's a place for personal and individual activism and involvement. But my beloved, the fact is that we're not going to be able to rid the world of the curse of sin that it's under. But you know one place that I can make a difference is in my home. 
I think it's important for us to learn to take small bites and not to try to save the world because my arms are too short, my shoulders are too narrow. I can't save the world. I can't even save my community. But you know, there are two places I think that I can have an influence. I can promote unity in the local church. We're to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You know what I want? I want a church where there is peace and unity and togetherness and like-mindedness, don't you? I can make a difference in this small plot of ground that has been cordoned off from the world at large that is devoted to a particular purpose. My friends, I can make a difference in my home and my family, and you can too. Listen to the 128th Psalm, the garden language of a godly home. Psalm 128, after the 127th Psalm, in which he says that children are the heritage of the Lord. He talks about, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain. You know the greatest contractor that there's ever been, the greatest builder that there's ever been is the Lord. It takes three to make a godly marriage. A a devoted husband, a dedicated wife, and the Lord and His blessing. And except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. The best kind of marriage is a Christian marriage. And Psalm 127 talks about the Lord building the house and how children are the heritage of the Lord. And we're to point them like arrows in the hand of a mighty man toward the bullseye. We're to give them direction. We're to, we know what the target is, and we are seeking to train them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And we're happy. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. This is a wonderful scene. Notice the very next psalm, Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord. Here's a God-fearing person and a God-fearing husband, a God-fearing wife that walketh in his ways. When you have God-fearing parents, here's what happens. For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands. Happy shalt thou be. Now, I don't know about you, but I had rather be happy than miserable. There's nothing wrong with happiness. I've heard preachers say that joy is not the same as happiness. Well, I like what John Calvin said, that joy is the disposition of the soul toward cheerfulness. That's a good definition. A disposition, that's your leaning. It's a disposition to have the joy of the Lord is to be happy in Him. Happy is that people that is in such a case. Yea, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. Jesus said, be of good cheer. (laughs) Cheer up. For I have overcome the world. There's reason, my friends, for God's believing children to be the happiest people on the face of this earth. You say, well, look at everything that's wrong. Train your mind not to get into the rut of criticism, my friend, but instead focus on the blessings of the Lord and remember that He's on the throne, that Jesus is the Savior of sinners, that He's coming again one day, and He's promised you grace sufficient for the moment. Well, He says, happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee, Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house. Sounds like a garden metaphor to me. And thy children like olive plants round about thy table. Now, of course, olives were a staple in the Jewish economy. And he tells us that uh, a God-fearing home will have 
the joys of, gar of a garden paradise. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed that feareth the Lord. He goes on to talk about your grandchildren. Thou shalt see thy children's children and peace upon Israel. Oh, my friends, that our marriages would replicate the original pattern that God gave to the first couple. I believe when they do that, our marriages can be as fulfilling, as intimate, and as harmonious as Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden before sin, marred the beautiful scene. And that's what Ephesians 5 is teaching. When he begins that chapter in the first verse by saying, be followers of God as dear children and walk in love. And the word followers means literally imitators or images of God. Man was made originally what? In God's image. Now he says be images of the Father by walking in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And then he proceeds to talk about in verse 25 how that love is to influence the husband-wife relationship. Instead of there being self-centeredness, self-promotion, self-interest in the man and the woman in a marriage relationship, husbands are to love their wives even as Christ loved the church. The wives are to defer to their husbands and be the helper that God has ordained them to be. And when the wife is willing to pull in the same direction as the husband is leading. And he, of course, I think it's important to say, it's an important lesson for young people to ask yourself the question before you get married, are there traits in this man that I do respect? And will, am I willing to follow his leadership? And if you can answer that, then you're to practice deference to him. Now, now deference is to be mutual. Verse 21 says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Sister Lori says, Mike, uh, would you help me by carrying out the trash? I say, no, ma'am, that's not my job. I'm not, I wasn't born a woman. How far would that get me? Uh, it'd probably get me in the doghouse, don't you reckon? Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, just, I, I'm watching my ball game. I'm watching the news. Now, my friends, I can come down off of my high horse and defer. That's humility, submitting yourselves one to another. In fact, if I truly love her, I'm willing to help her. You heard about the man that uh, told his wife, said, honey, I love you so much, I'd jump in front of a oncoming train, push you out of the way to save your life. I'd sacrifice myself for you. I'd jump in front of a speeding bullet. I love you that much, I'd die for you. She said, well, honey, that's nice, but will you help me do the dishes right now? <laughs> it's, um, there is to be a deference, but in a functional capacity, you can't have two heads. A two-headed creature is a monstrosity. And the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. And as the church is subject to Christ, the wife is to be willing to be a teammate. And that's not because she's inferior, it's because that's the way God designed it. And I believe that godly women don't rebel against that. Godly women are glad, in fact, they want to do the will of God. And they find their greatest life purpose in that role. 
as a wife and a mother, but godly men, the, the real, the hardest part of Ephesians 5 is not the wives' role. The hardest part is that the husband is to see and model his leadership of his wife in terms of the cross of Calvary. He's to look at what Christ did for the church. And my friends, I haven't even begun to measure up to that standard. And I doubt any man here has perfected that. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. But I'll tell you, when a husband and wife relationship is a Christian marriage, that is, when the cross and the gospel influences the way that we conduct our homes, my beloved, it's a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. I'm telling you that what you have when a husband and a wife are functioning in a Christian way in their marriage relationship, you have a reproduction, an echo of the Garden of Eden. You have a garden paradise. You can have a slice of paradise in your families. Instead of the home being a battlefield where everyone is out for old number one and they're ready to come to blows and you have to look over your shoulder, the home is a place of encouragement, a place of fulfillment, a place of safety, a place of peace. It's a garden paradise in this world. Don't you want that? Amen. I've had enough of the other, my friends. That's what I want in my life. I believe through Christ it's possible. Here's another place that it's possible to return to the garden. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a garden in this world. Yes. Song of Solomon chapter 4, we read, <clears throat> beginning in verse 12, a garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. Now I understand that Solomon had a, the king's garden was in Jerusalem. And it was um, a place that was not open to the public. It was shut off from the rest of society. It was specifically for the king's refreshment and peace is called the king's garden. And he also had other garden holdings in a, according to Josephus the historian, in a town or village called Ethan. And there was actually a fountain in one of those gardens in Ethan that was sealed up with the king's signet. And that meant that it was not accessible to anybody but the king. It was only for him to enjoy the water, the refreshment from that fountain. That may be the image that, is, that Solomon's drawing on when he says, my beloved, my wife, is a garden enclosed. That is, she's separated from the world. The church is not to be like the world, it's to be separated. Just like a garden is marked out. How do you know when a, the wilderness stops and a garden starts, there's usually a boundary, right? A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up and a fountain sealed. That is, the, her love is only for me and mine only for her. He's describing the most intimate kind of relationship. And I suggest for consideration that though this is a beautiful picture of romantic love, Song of Solomon finds its ultimate fulfillment and meaning in the love relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. The church of Jesus Christ, my beloved, is a small slice of paradise in this world of ugliness and sin. I don't know about you, but I've had a ball here this weekend. 
I've not had, I've not struggled with impure thoughts. I've not struggled with bad attitudes. Now, I've, I, I, that doesn't mean that I'm totally free from the flesh. But you know, when you're listening to the hymns of the faith and you're listening to the word of God being proclaimed and you're in fellowship with the saints and hugging each other's neck and thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ, I dare say it's like a return to the garden. It's an echo of the original paradise that God made. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 13 talks about the church as a garden paradise. Listen to what he says here. If I can find, I ran out of markers. You see, I'm a blue ribbon preacher. I have blue ribbons. (laughs) And I only had three. I only brought three with me. And I needed about a dozen. But anyway, Isaiah 61.3, here it is. 61.13, or 61.11. Isaiah 61.11, for as the earth bringeth forth her bud... And as the garden causeth things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. This is a prophecy of the new covenant of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as a garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. That was fulfilled in the New Testament church. Every time the church worships, my friends, it's like a garden producing its harvest. Listen to Isaiah 51, verse number three. For the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden. And her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, my beloved, is the recreation of the garden of Eden. That's why Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord says to the church at Ephesus, He that overcometh, let's see, Revelation 2-7, to him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the tree of life. Now, where did you hear about the tree of life? That's way back at the beginning of the Bible. We're in the last book of the Bible now. The tree of life, still here. He that overcometh, I will give to eat of the tree of life. He's talking about the person who overcomes The potential for sin by faith in Jesus Christ, I will give to eat, to be refreshed by of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He writes that to a church. Yes, indeed, my friends, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a little slice of heaven, this side of heaven. And finally, may I say that Jesus Christ, the great gardener, is indeed the real gardener who restores paradise lost. For he told the thief on the cross in Luke 23, 43, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. What is heaven? Jesus calls it paradise. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 4, speaking of his own experience, I knew such an one in Christ caught up to the third heaven, caught up to paradise. 
And in Revelation chapter 22, verse 1, I want to, you to listen to this description of the new garden city of God. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life. Isn't that interesting? How the Holy Spirit superimposes the Genesis narrative into the last book of the Bible, talking about the eternal state of the righteous. The tree of life is here again. You see, he's just described this new Jerusalem, the new capital city of the eternal state in the new city of God in Revelation 21, and now he says it's a garden city. You know, there are so many engineers that are seeking to preserve green space in our big cities, and they're wanting to develop garden cities. Florida is a good place for thinking of garden cities. There's a town in Florida outside of Orlando called Winter Garden, and it's a garden city. And many of the major cities in the Northeast have tried to recreate a little slice of nature in the midst of the concrete jungle of the big city. But I'll tell you, dear friends, only God can truly make a city. You say, I'd prefer the country over the city. Which will heaven be? It's both. It's both a city and a country. It's a better country, and it's the heavenly Jerusalem. But it's a garden city. There's a river running right through the middle of it, and the tree of life is in the midst of that river, and it is so expansive that the limbs reach to both banks, and it bears 12 manner of fruit. You like bananas, you like apples, you like citrus, you like cherries, it's what, it will satisfy your every need. And it bears that 12 manner of fruit not once a month, not once a year, but every month, my friends, 24-7, it's perpetual refreshment. It's verdant. It's fertile. It's fruitful. It bare 12 manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of that tree were for the healing of the nations. There will be no more psychological or physical pain in heaven. There's healing for that. There will be no more grief, there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more pride, there will be no more anger, there will be no more hostility. There's healing for that. My beloved, paradise is coming. Our death occurred in a garden, but our resurrection also took place in a garden where Jesus Christ was raised never to die again. And because of the empty garden tomb, those of us who live in a culture that is currently scarred by sin and death may look forward in hopeful anticipation to an everlasting garden paradise where, like Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20, we may cling to the feet of our risen Lord with surprised joy and live in perpetual communion with our risen Lord. The Bible's the story of two trees. One tree that was cursed, but Jesus hung on that tree. Cursed is every man that hangeth on the tree. And one tree that's the tree of blessing that provides eternal life. The Bible's the story of two men. The first Adam 
and the last Adam. The first Adam lost paradise, but the second Adam regained it. The Bible's the story, the tale of two cities. Babylon with its anti-God rhetoric and spirit. And Jerusalem, which is from above, where the sun never sets. It's a city that never sleeps because there's no night there. And may I say the night, the, 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 there's no crime there. There are no crooked lawyers there. There's no evil doctor there. There's no mad scientist there. You know, there's a lot of mad science going on in our world today. Science, it's science, but there are mad scientists. They're perverting and using it with an anti-God motive. I'm telling you, dear friends, there's none of that over there. Now, there'll be some lawyers there, but they're redeemed by the blood of Christ. They won't practice law because there won't be any crime. There'll be some preachers there, believe it or not, but they won't be preaching. Somebody said, hallelujah. (laughs) I won't be in charge. Brother Tim won't be in charge. Jesus Christ will be the spectacle in which we gaze upon his glory forever and ever. And we'll never get bored. We'll never be tired. It'll be paradise. Until then, may God bless us to make our homes and our churches little garden spots in this unfriendly world in which we live. You may return to the garden, not through human means, but through the grace of God, the real gardener, the Lord Jesus Christ.